the greater discourse at Asakura. And in the Sutta, the Buddha has been discussing step by step the stages of training that lead to the state of the true ascetic, the true samana. And we have sketched all of the stages up through the attainment of samadhi concentration, beginning from kiri and otapa, that's the sense of moral shame and fear of wrongdoing, through the different aspects of sila, good conduct of body, speech, and mind, then the factors which are the trans mark the transition from sila to samadhi, that is such factors as restraint of the senses, moderation in eating, wakefulness, mindfulness, and clear comprehension. Then we dealt with the abandoning of the five mental hindrances, and when those are abandoned, then the practice of concentration reaches its fulfillment with the attainment of the four jhanas. That is the topic that we dealt with in the last two sessions. Now the attainment of the four jhanas marks the achievement of very blissful, very peaceful, very sublime states of consciousness, even states which are so exalted that those who lack the instruction of a Samasambuddha will think on achieving these states of Samadhi that this is the ultimate, especially when one reaches the fourth jhana, the mind becomes completely calm, perfectly equanimous, no disturbance by any thoughts, any excitement, not even the subtle feelings of pleasure that remain in the third jhana. So the experience of that profound samadhi is just so powerful and so overwhelming that without the guidance of a Buddha, one would not think that there is anything further to be done. One will think that one has reached the end of the path and that one is completely liberated from the round of samsara, the round of birth and death. But the unique achievement of a Buddha is to pierce through the limitations even in the highest states of samadhi and to see that these are not yet the ultimate, not yet final liberation. And in order to arrive at final liberation, at the true attainment of Nibbana, one still has to undertake another stage of training, 
This is the stage of training which is called Panya, wisdom. And it's through this stage of training in wisdom that the chelases or defilements are cut off right at the very root level. In the commentaries they often speak of the chelases or defilements as having three levels of which they operate. The coarsest level is, or stage, is what is called the stage of transgression. That is where the defilements are very active in the mind and lead to bad conduct, bodily, verbal misconduct. In other words, to the transgression of the basic precepts and principles of morality. Then a subtler stage is called the stage of manifestation or obsession. The Pali word is pariyutana. This is the stage where the defilements come into the mind as thoughts, emotions, and they disturb the mind, but they're not yet strong enough to result in immoral conduct. And then the third stage is the subtlest and deepest stage. That is the stage of anusayas, latent tendencies or dormant tendencies. Now the stage of the defilements and the stage of transgression those are controlled and inhibited by sila, morality. When one undertakes the precepts, then one makes a determination not to violate the basic moral principles, not to kill, steal, commit sexual misconduct, lie, or take intoxicants. And so sila helps to control the coarsest manifestation of the defilements. But even though one is observing the precepts, still the defilements will come into the mind in the form of manifestation or obsession. To eliminate the defilements in that aspect, here they will be coming up as the five hindrances sensual desire, ill will, dullness, drowsiness, restlessness, and worry and doubt, as well as other defilements. To eliminate them at this level, one practices concentration, samatha, samadhi. And as samadhi develops, then the manifest form of the defilements is inhibited. And so the defilements do not even appear in consciousness. And it's for this reason that one who has achieved a very high degree of proficiency in samadhi 
will think that he has reached liberation. Because the mind becomes extremely pure, very lofty and exalted, free from any kind of manifest form of unwholesome tendencies. But the Buddha points out that when one has mastered samadhi, one is merely inhibiting the manifest forms of the defilements. But the roots, the underlying roots or latent tendencies of the defilements, the anusaya, still remain because no amount of samadhi is capable of eradicating them. In order to eradicate the defilements, one has to use panya, wisdom or insight, in order to see into the true nature of phenomena. That is, to see them in terms of the three marks, impermanence, dukkha, and anta. And therefore the Buddha, in the sequence of training explained in the Sutta, doesn't stop with the jhanas, but goes on to the development of panya. And here the stage of training in panya is explained in terms of what are called the three clear knowledges, or three three types of true knowledge, the three vichas. We have the three true knowledges, or te vicha, the knowledge of one's previous lives, or former lives, then the knowledge of the passing away and re-arising of beings, and then the knowledge of the destruction of the asavas, the fundamental defilements. Now, strictly speaking, the first two types of true knowledge are not really forms of panya. They're, they don't require insight into the Dhamma, knowledge of the three characteristics or any of the special teachings of the Buddha. Even ascetics and meditators outside the Buddha Dhamma who achieve deep levels of samadhi can, by directing the mind in the right way, they can achieve these knowledges at least to some extent. But the Buddha very often groups them together, all three of them together, I think because these first two types of true knowledge contribute indirectly to, the, to a deeper understanding of the Four Noble Truths. When one recollects one's previous lives, going back one life after another, even according to the text, for many aeons, then one sees repeatedly that one is born 
grows old and dies, then there comes a very clear picture of the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. And then when one sees how living beings pass away and take rebirth according to their karma, going from one state to another, again one gets a very clear perception of impermanence and dukkha, suffering. And so I think for, for this reason, the Buddha has grouped all three of these knowledges together and explained them within the phase of the training called the training in Panya. Even though it's only in the third of these, in the knowledge of the destruction of the asapas, that one will actually develop the insights into the three characteristics of the Dhamma. Okay, so now we'll come to the text, to the Sutta. This is paragraph 19. And the Buddha begins the discussion of these three types of true knowledge by showing the requirement for arriving at these types of knowledge. The requirement is the mastery of samadhi through the four jhanas. At least this is the requirement for the first two types of true knowledge. In order to obtain a masterly knowledge of previous existences, so that just at will one could recollect one's previous lives, one needs mastery of the fourth jhana. And in order to develop the deeper chakku, the divine eye, through which one can see how living beings arise and pass away according to their karma, again one needs mastery over the fourth jhana. And so the Buddha begins by saying, when his concentrated mind, samadhi-tam-chitam, the mind that's been deeply immersed in samadhi, when the mind is thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, or rid of corruptions or manifest types of defilement, when it is malleable, you're able to mold it the way one wants to, wieldy, so that one can apply it that one, the way one wants to. When the mind is steady, it's unshakable, and attained to imperturbability, complete freedom from any disturbance, then one directs that mind to the knowledge of the recollection of past lives. According to the method that's explained in the Visuddhimagga, one doesn't just begin by thinking, let me remember my past lives, but one has to train the faculty of memory by going back and recollecting in this present life what one did 
if one is starting in the evening, say, then one thinks, what did I do in the afternoon, what did I do in the morning, then one starts turning the mind back, what happened yesterday, a month ago, a year ago. I don't think one could go through every day and every past year, otherwise it would take a whole lifetime to finish remembering. So perhaps after sharpening up the memory in the near present, then one starts trying to recollect things in increasingly more distant units, even back to one's childhood and infancy, until one can remember even things that happened when was when one was just a little baby. The Visuddhi Mata says that if that doesn't work, if one can't gain those memories, then you have to re-enter the fourth jhana, let the mind remain for some time in the jhana till the barriers to memory subside, then one comes out and again tries to remember. And when one continually does this, after some time, one will come back even to the period when one was just a fetus in the womb. Then one traces the memory back even through the embryonic period until one gets to the very moment of conception, which is like, at that point, it's said that one comes up against a brick wall and one can't penetrate any further. But the Visuddhimagga gives the same advice. When one reaches that stage, again one enters the fourth jhana, fortifies the mind, through the power of samadhi, then comes out and makes a determination, let me break through past the very moment of conception. And when one does that repeatedly, after some time, suddenly there will start coming up recollections from the preceding life. And that's the first breakthrough by which one remembers one past life. Then having done that, one begins, one masters the memory of that life, then one can start recollecting two lives, three lives, and so on. Thus the text continues, he recollects his manifold past lives, that is one birth, two births, then the elated portion says three births, four births, five births, ten births, twenty births, thirty, fifty, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand, and many aeons of world evolution, many aeons of world dissolution, many aeons of world evolution and dissolution. Thus, with their aspects and particulars, he recollects his many past lives. And so even though it might seem so difficult for, for us to remember even what we did 
a week ago or a month ago, let, let alone to speak of what happened in our childhood and in our previous life. But the Mahasabhakas, the great disciples of the Buddha, who have mastered this knowledge, can remember even past lives through aeons and aeons. Then the Buddha gives a very nice simile to illustrate this, very easy to understand. He says, just as a man might go from his own village to another village, and then he might go from that village to another village, and then go back again to his own village. And so he might think, I went from my own village to that other village, and there I stood in such a way, I sat in such a way, I spoke in such a way, I kept silent in such a way. And from that village I went to that other village, and there I stood in such a way. I sat in such a way, I spoke in such a way, I kept silent in such a way. And from that village I came back again to my own village. So too, a bhikkhu recollects his manifold past lives with their aspects and particulars. And according to the text, what the monk recollects, he recollects his personal name, his family name, what kind of color of his skin, what kind of food he ate, what kind of experiences, pleasant and painful experiences, he underwent. So this is the recollection, the knowledge of recollection of past life. Okay, then we come to the second true knowledge. This is called, in Pali it's called Chupupapata Jnana, or also called Kamupaka Jnana. It's the knowledge of the arising and passing away of other beings, or the, also called the knowledge of how beings arrive at the results of their own karma. Because if we take a look at the world, we see some people do very terrible actions, engage in very ferocious deeds, and yet they seem to be enjoying all sorts of success and pleasure and enjoyment. While other people are very upright, virtuous, dedicated to good actions, kind, compassionate, and yet they seem to suffer all sorts of misfortune. <coughs> and so just by looking out with our physical, <coughs> our physical eyes at the world, it seems that it's teeming with injustice. But if we had the Deva Chakra, the divine eye, by which we can see the working of karma and how karma operates 
from life to life, then we will see that living beings do inherit the results of their own action, that they cannot escape the results of their karma. Then we'll see how living beings pass from one life to another and in doing so take a rebirth as determined by their karma. And so it's expressed in the Sutta when his concentrated mind is thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, he directs it to knowledge of the passing away and reappearance or rearising of being. Then there's some passage that's deleted here, but the Buddha goes on. Thus with the divine eye, the deep chakku, which is purified and surpasses the human, he sees beings passing away and reappearing, inferior and superior, fair and ugly. Then actually this is a wrong translation here. It should be fortunate and unfortunate and he understands how beings pass on according to their actions. And the passage which is deleted says that when the bhikkhu is seeing this, he thinks to himself, so it is that those beings who engage in wrong conduct of body, speech, and mind have been who were of wrong views and performed actions based on their own views, who reviled and disregarded the noble ones, such beings have been reborn in the lower realms of existence, in the plane of misery, in perdition, in hell. While those beings who have engaged in good conduct of body, speech, and mind who have held right views and performed actions based on their right views and who had respect for the noble ones, those beings have been reborn in the fortunate realms of existence, even in the heavenly world. And so through this knowledge of the divine I, one perceives directly for oneself how rebirth is governed by karma, by a person's action. I don't remember the details in the Visuddhi Magga way of developing this knowledge. I think one has to develop the light kasina, the aloka kasina, then radiate that light outward so that it is able to illuminate other realms of existence. And then one makes a determination to see the beings in those other realms of existence and then to see how beings in the human world pass from this world to other realms in accordance with their karma.
Okay, and then the Buddha concludes this, the exposition of this knowledge with another simile which makes the direct quality of this vision very clear. He says, it is as if there were two houses with doors and a man with good sight was standing there between the two houses and he saw people entering the houses and coming out and passing to and fro just as that man would be able to see very clearly that now somebody is coming out from house A he's walking across and entering house B then he sees some a few people come out from house B walk across go into house A or if there are other houses on the street he'll see them coming and going from one house to another maybe going from the house to the shop from the shop back to another house to visit a neighbor so all of this will be just immediately visible to him he doesn't have to use <laughs> any reasoning to figure out whether the person goes from one house to another he doesn't have to telephone <laughs> friends to ask whether they went from this house to that house he doesn't have to depend on any sacred book to tell them that people go from this house to that house but he's seeing it for himself and so when the bhikkhu develops the divine eye then just with a kind of direct vision he can see how beings transmigrate through from one life to another and how their mode of transmigration is governed by their past action their karma there are actual, actually this is a kind of general principle but there are very subtle ways in which karma operates which will not be visible even to a yogi with that divine eye to see all the subtleties in the working of karma that's supposed to be a function a special function of the Buddha's knowledge the the knowledge of the great exposition or analysis of karma but by way of general principles what is said in this passage will hold true okay so these two knowledges now the first two vija these two knowledges as I said are not really the development of panya inside wisdom and they do not involve countless time always undergoing aging sickness and death sometimes in high state sometimes in low states sometimes enjoying pleasure and bliss sometimes pain and misery when one sees this happening over and over countless times one gets a sense of the complete pointlessness and misery of samsaric becoming just 
arising and passing, arising and passing. And in one's blindness, one enjoys one's success and pleasure, wanting to hold on to it forever. And then as one is contemplating, one sees before one's eyes everything collapse and one falls into aging, sickness, death to be reborn someplace else. Again, the striving for happiness and success, then maybe achieving it, maybe failing to get it. Again, disappointment, decline, aging, sickness and death, all occurring countless times. And so that gives a strong sense of nibida, disenchantment, or revulsion towards the round of rebirth. Then if one develops the divine eye and sees the re-arising and passing away of beings, then one sees how the same process of rebirth just embraces every living being in the cosmos. And so the entire process of life, the entire universe, is just this pointless round of incessant becoming. Like a ship being tossed about on the ocean, sometimes strong waves come from the south and blow it up to the north. Strong winds come from the east and blow it to the west. Winds from the west blow it to the east. And the ship just moves without any control driven by the winds from the ocean. And so living beings just pass on according to their karma. Going from life to life because of their craving for existence. And so again, this strong disenchantment or revulsion arises. As a result of that, one makes the determination to gain liberation from the entire cycle of rebirths. And to do that, one must develop the panya or wisdom, which is unique to the Buddha sasana. That is the insight into the law or principle of paticca samuppada dependent origination, insight into the three marks of anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, suffering, and egolessness, and insight into the Four Noble Truths. And it is this, these insights or knowledges which the Buddha has grouped together here as the knowledge of the destruction of the asavas, the destruction of the taints or mental corruptions. And the Buddha, in this passage, he explains this knowledge in terms of the understanding or insight of the Four Noble Truths. 
So we come to paragraph 21. When his concentrated mind is thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, he directs that mind to the knowledge of the destruction of the taint. As I've, I've explained before, theosophies or taints, these are the fundamental defilements. They're actually equivalent to the anusayas, the fundamental defilements which maintain the round of rebirth. And in the suttas, the three asapas are mentioned. That is the taint of sensual desire, desire for sense pleasures, the bhavasapa, which is the taint of desire for existence, desire for becoming, and the avijasapa. the taint of ignorance or unknowing. And so the bhikkhu directs his mind to the knowledge of the destruction of the taints. He understands as it actually is, these are the Four Noble Truths now, this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Okay, that's the Four Noble Truths. Then that same formula of the Four Truths is applied to the asapas themselves. He sees, he understands as it actually is. These are the taints. This is the origin of the taints. This is the cessation of the taints. And this is the way leading to the cessation of the taints. Okay, here in this passage, the Buddha has just expressed very concisely what is really a long and drawn out process of developing the different stages of insight knowledge, then going through the different muggas and palas, the different paths and fruits. But the Buddha has not analyzed that in sequence here, but he's just, for the sake of concision, collapsed it all together and explained it as the knowledge, the direct visual knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. And when he knows and sees thus, his mind is liberated from the taint of sensual desire. Actually, the mind gets liberated from the taint of sensual desire at the stage of anagami. But then one still has to practice further to liberate the mind from the other <coughs> So by practicing further, when one reaches the path to arahanship, then through the practice of that path, 
the mind becomes liberated from the taint of desire for being, desire for existence, the bhavasana. And again, through the path of arahanship, the mind is liberated from the taint of ignorance, from the avijasana. And so here, the Buddha is showing the path, you can take these, put these together, he's showing the path of arahanship as involving the seeing and understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And by seeing and understanding the Four Noble Truths, the mind is liberated from the pain until we get to the last stage we come to the phrase when it is liberated that will show the attainment of the fruit of arahatsha arahatapala the state when the mind is completely liberated from all the things and when the fruit is achieved then there arises subsequent to the fruit, a kind of knowledge by which one realizes, yes, now the mind is liberated. That is called in the commentaries the Pachavekananyana, reviewing or reflecting knowledge. And he understands birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done. There is no more of this beyond. There is nothing further beyond this. So that is the final confirming knowledge of our hardship, the knowledge of the destruction of the taints, the defilements. And now again the Buddha illustrates this with a very concrete and picturesque simile. He says, just as if there were a lake in a mountain recess, clear, limpid, and undisturbed, and a man with good sight standing on the bank could see in the lake the shells, gravel, and pebbles, and also shoals of fish swimming about and resting. Then he might think to himself, here is this lake, clear, limpid, and undisturbed, and there there are these shells, gravel, and pebbles, and the shoals of fish swimming about and resting. It's a very beautiful simile, isn't it? It's not like the man is looking into a cloudy, muddy lake, wondering, are there fish in there? And then maybe he'll see a little something under and wondering, is that a stone or is that a fish? There's just nothing cloudy or obscure in his vision at all, but it's just all crystal clear, perfectly transparent. And so, when the bhikkhu sees the Four Noble Truths, 
that seeing of the truths is just as clear, just as transparent, just as self-evident as the man seeing these rocks and gravel and the schools of fish in the lake and the mountain. Okay, and with that passage, we actually come to the completion of the Buddha's exposition of the entire training that makes one a true ascetic, a true recluse or summoner. But now, to conclude the discourse, the Buddha has added another passage which in a sense sort of summarizes all that he has said and which is a kind of extolling or exaltation of the liberated one, the Arahant. And this involves a series of puns or wordplays which is, it's just impossible to reproduce it in English. Um, but I'll explain how it's done in the Pali. Okay. In starting with paragraph 23, how is a bhikkhu, a, here the word is monk, but it's actually samana, which I've been translating now as ascetic. The explanation is, he has quieted down evil, unwholesome states that defile, that bring renewal of being or repeated existence, rebirth that give trouble, ripen and suffering, and lead to future birth, aging and death. That is how a bhikkhu is an ascetic. Now the word play here, yeah, the word samana, which means ascetic, actually comes from a root, the Sanskrit form would be shram, which means to exert oneself to strive, but in say a language like Pali or whatever other language the Buddha spoke, Sanskrit form, Pali is also sum, which means peace, to be peaceful or to settle down, like the word santi or samma, meaning peace comes from that sum. So here the Buddha playfully derives the word samana from that other root sam meaning peaceful or to subside that samitasa hunti papaga dhamma so the evil unwholesome states in him have subsided or settled down or become peaceful that's why he's called a samana of course, the word samana is not really derived from that explanation, but the Buddha just tries to give a, what might call, it's, in a sense, an implicit exhortation 
within the word derivation to show that one should try to get rid of evil, unwholesome states in order to become a true samana. Okay, then the word brahmana, that's the next one. How is a bhikkhu of brahmana? The explanation is the same, except that he is one who has expelled evil, unwholesome states. Now the word brahmana actually comes from the word, ancient Indian word brahman, which means the holy power or sacred power. And so the brahmana was the one in whom that power is especially invested, and therefore the one who has the authority to perform the sacred Vedic rites. Now I think, this is according to some Pali scholars, it's very likely that in the original language that the Buddha spoke, the word Brahmana, which is a Sanskrit word, is actually pronounced something like Bhamana, without the R. So it was Bhamana. And there's another word in Pali, Bahita, which means to exclude, to expel. And so now the Buddha is playfully deriving the word if we can imagine it pronounced Bhamana, Brahmana in Sanskrit. He's playfully deriving it from this word Bahita, which means expelled or driven out. So the Arhat Bhikkhu is a Brahmana because he has expelled evil, unwholesome states. Then a Bhikkhu is one who has been washed. I think this refers to the ancient Brahman practice of bathing as a way of gaining purification. Actually, the Pali word is just like the Sinhalese word, nana, nana. <laughs> okay, so the Brahmins held that by bathing in the sacred rivers, one washes away one's sins and one's evil karma. And so the Buddha says that it's by practicing this Noble Eightfold Path that one washes away the evil, unwholesome states. So therefore he says of the Arahant Bhikkhu that he is one who has been purified through bathing because he has washed off these evil, unwholesome states that be filed. Then the Brahmins had an ideal, an ideal person which they called the Vedagu. This is one who has mastered the knowledge of the three Vedas, the sacred scriptures, the Vedas. And the word Veda itself comes from a root meaning to know or knowledge. And so the Buddha indicates that the true Vedagu, or master of sacred knowledge, it's not the one who studies the ancient Sanskrit Vedas, but the one who has known <coughs> these evil, unwholesome states that defile, and by knowing them, has gotten rid of them. 
So there it's not so much, well, there's a little bit of a wordplay. So the root, in the, this case, the root of Vedagu and Vedita is the same. So it's just that the two terms are understood differently by the Brahmins and by the Buddha. Then the Brahmins also had another ideal related to Vedagu, which they called Sotya, which comes from the same word as you have the word Bahusutta in Pali, Bahusutta, one who has heard much, one who has much learning, it comes from the root to hear. So one who has heard much, learning the explanations and the philosophy of the Vedas, and mastered the sacred knowledge of the Vedas, he was called by the Brahmins in Sanskrit, Shotriya, in Pali, Sotya. But there is another <laughs> verb in Sanskrit, it's sru, not shru, but sru, which means to stream. In Pali, they both become the same word, sutta. Sutta as hearing and sutta as streaming or flowing or rushing over. And so here the Buddha says that one is a sotya, we say a holy scholar, in that the evil, unwholesome states that defile have streamed away from them. They've been streamed or cleaned off. Okay, then next the Buddha says, he brings in the word Arya, which means noble one. How is the Arahant? a noble one. The word Arya, I don't know the original verbal root, but it's not this one. <laughs> There's another word in Pali, Araga, which means far or remote. So the Buddha, plate, using a pun, he says that one is an Arya, a noble one, because evil, unwholesome states that defile have become far away from him, remote from him. Then the word arahant is derived from a root meaning to be worthy. Arahant, to be deserving or worthy. That is to be worthy of reverence and gifts. So the Arahant is so called because he is the one who is truly worthy of veneration. But here the Buddha derives this term again through a pun from that same disconnected word, Araka, which means to be far away from. And so the explanation in this case is the same. He's called an Arahant because the evil, unwholesome states that defile are far away from it. Okay, and that is what the Blessed One said, and the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. And that is the end of the sutta and the end of the class. <laughs>
Okay, so we've taken a little more time this, this evening. But if there are any questions, then please. Are these qualities of the Buddha also? Excuse me? Are these all qualities of the Buddha also? Charita Dhamma. Charita Dhamma. Charita Dhamma. These things? What came before? They're not identical, not all identically the same, but many of, I say all of those up to the three beaches belong to Charana, even though they're not all, I think, enumerated within the 15 Charana Dhammas. Yeah, I think the Charana, the 15 Charana Dhammas mentioned something called seven, it's called Saddhamma, seven good states, which are not mentioned as such in this. Though there, of course, there are five. So sometimes, uh, the end of Adipanya, the end of 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 the 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 that it auto, you say automatically these so? Imperceptibly. It doesn't move on imperceptibly. It forms a foundation for the wisdom. The Buddha includes the four jhanas and adhicitta. When we have the three trainings, then there's adhisila, adhicitta, which he explains as the four jhanas then Adipanya, which will be the knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. So we would say that the Adichitta, or the Four Jhanas, is a foundation for Adipanya, but not that it imperceptibly leads on. One has to make you know, a conscious and deliberate effort to develop Adipanya based on the Jhanas. I didn't quite understand. Biku uh, as a scholar yeah. and uh, as a noble person. Yeah. Is there a link? You mean you're referring here to this expression holy scholar? Yeah. yeah. That's not referring to scholar the way we ordinarily understand the term as somebody who studies the Buddhist texts and analyzes them. He's taking this in fact in that passage most of these terms that he's selected are Brahminic terms, terms that signify an ideal being according to the Brahmins. The, let's see, the Brahmin, the one who has been washed, the Vedagu, the Sotya, those are all Brahminic terms for their ideal man. And the Buddha has just taken these terms over from the Brahmin and redefined them. But when he speaks of holy scholar, he's referring to an Arahant. <laughs> and it's not just somebody who studies the, the Buddhist texts. 
I wouldn't say he's ridiculing it. He's just taking these terms and redefining them in order to give them a meaning which, you know, illustrates the ideal qualities of his own teaching. Perhaps he was giving this discourse. I don't know much about this town of Asapura. Perhaps it was an area which was heavily populated by Brahmins, and maybe some of many of these monks perhaps were converts to Buddhism from the Brahmin Brahmin families, and so he might have been using terms that would have been familiar to them. Okay, I think we should stop now, and then we'll continue next week, unless no holiday. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.